Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. All right, this is episode 21, and today it's all about your embryos. So I'm so excited about this episode, but if I'm being real, I'm actually excited about every episode that comes out. Um, today we have Elise the Embryologist at Elise the Embryologist on Instagram. There's underscores um, in that. And um, we break down all things embryo and we answer your submitted questions. So we talk today about embryo quality, embryo storage, freezing, um, what happens during freezing and thawing, risk of embryo loss during the freeze-thaw process, um, stimulation length and their impact on embryos. We talk about, you know, fresh versus frozen if you're doing egg donors. So, I mean, we cover a whole spectrum of um, topics. So I hope that you find uh, this beneficial. There is a lot to digest. So as with the last episode, make sure you have something to take notes on because I think that this will be helpful to reference back to. Um, whether you are new to the journey or even if you're an IVF veteran and you just want to know more about your embryos and uh, what goes on in the lab, you'll want to stick around to hear this episode. As always, if you found value in what you heard here today, I would be ever so grateful if you dropped a five-star review or a written review so that uh, more of these episodes could get into more people's ears. Um, I want to continue to encourage you to submit questions, watch my stories, um, watch my posts for um, question boxes for um, any questions or submit a request for a topic you want covered. I'm happy to look into it and see what I can do to get it covered. Um, okay, I usually talk a lot, so I'm going to keep this one short. Here we go. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician, and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So, Make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey guys, we're back with another episode and today we have Elise the Embryologist. I'm so excited to have her here today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here, Elise. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited, especially we're filming this on National Infertility Awareness Week. So it's a, it's a big week and I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. So I have to talk about something that I saw recently that you posted. You were featured on Good Morning America. Oh my gosh. I was, I was. Honestly, I was shocked <laughs> that they reached out to me, but it was a super cool opportunity and um, they were really nice. It was an article, so I wasn't on TV or anything, but it was super cool. Um, and hopefully I'll get some more chances to spread awareness about infertility and um, yeah. Yeah. It was super cool. Yeah, no, that's so exciting. I'm so glad I grabbed you before that then. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm so glad that I, I got to snag you up before that happened. But so let's start a little bit about how because you also have a big following on TikTok and it kind of all started on TikTok for you. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about how you decide to become an embryologist and then the start of your TikTok account. Would you mind talking about that? Yeah, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do in undergrad because, you know, there's just so much to do. (laughs) But I always had an interest in reproductive health, in genetics, in women's health. Um, And so I looked for what can I do with my degree? Because I was burned out. I didn't want to go to any more school. I didn't want to go to med school or grad school. I was like, I just need a break. I need a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found this field and was like, oh my gosh, this seems like such a good fit. There's lab work, there's patient care. I only have to have a bachelor's. So I reached out to all the clinics in my area, asked them if I could come shadow, if I could come intern. And the clinic that I work out now, the clinic that I work at now is the only clinic that got back to me. Oh my gosh. Um, but it worked out clearly because I'm still here. And um, yeah, I've been able to learn on the job. Embryology is a field where you don't really have to have any training before you get to the job other than your basic lab skills that you learn in undergrad. And everything was trained up on the way. Mm-hmm. That's so awesome. Yeah, it was it, it. I felt like I was getting a graduate degree without getting a graduate degree. Like the four years I've been here, I've learned as much I feel like as someone who has gotten a PhD, you know, would learn, but I got paid to do it. Yeah. Um, which is super cool. Even better. <laughs> it, exactly, exactly. Um, and then, you know, my second year here, I really noticed the lack of knowledge that a lot of our patients had on what was happening in the lab. They had a lot of questions. I felt like I was constantly getting the same questions from them. And I was like, hey, you know, maybe I should create something that shares my knowledge where I can have a platform to share what I know. Um, And I actually started on Instagram. Okay. So I had my Instagram account first because I didn't know anything about TikTok. Um, And my siblings who are younger than me were actually like, why aren't you on TikTok? Like, this stuff should be on TikTok. This is so cool, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I don't know TikTok very well, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I'm so glad I listened to them yeah. eventually because my TikTok has gotten much bigger than my Instagram. Um, so it's a great platform for kind of what I'm showing. And it reaches a lot of people, which is obviously the goal, is to educate. So um, I'm grateful for them for giving me that little push to get on TikTok versus just sticking to Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you've got... A ton of videos on there and is it primarily centered around your work in the lab or do you what do you talk on your what do you talk about on your TikTok account? So it's mostly centered around my work in the lab. I do throw in some general women's health and sexual education in there because I do have a lot of young followers, so I like to include that as well. Um, yeah, it's mostly just what I do in the lab. I like to show visuals so you actually get to see what I'm doing you know, see how it actually works in the lab, which I feel like a lot of patients don't get just from their general Mm -hmm. Google searching. So um, I think that visual really helps with the learning aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about what an embryologist does. So some some people who are listening may have just started on their IVF journey. Some people may be further down the road. 
I'm four cycles in and I have some idea <laughs> of what you guys do, but maybe you can kind of enlighten us on kind of what does an embryologist do in the lab? Yeah, so a lot of people think that we are doctors. We are not doctors. The only person that has to have a doctorate degree, which is a PhD, is our lab director. Everyone else is not required to have a doctorate or be a doctor. So we're not physicians. <laughs> I get that question a lot. I'm like, I promise I'm not a doctor. Don't ask me to do medical questions. Um, but we are the ones who are doing the lab work. So we are growing your embryos, culturing them, freezing them, thawing them, processing sperm samples. We are doing anything and everything that is involved in your gametes or embryos. We are touching them in the lab. Um, so I think it's a really cool field and a field that a lot of people don't know a lot about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm four cycles in and I still have no idea what's going on. So I'm like, let's, can we first start talking about like the anatomy of an egg? So like, what do you look for in an egg? Like, how do you know it's mature? How do you know it can be fertilized? Yeah, absolutely. So when we get the tubes from the doctors, the doctors actually perform the egg retrieval. We are getting fluid from the doctors and looking through that fluid for an egg. And eggs are surrounded by big masses of cumulus cells. And that is what is protecting the eggs. And in natural fertilization, that cumulus actually helps the sperm bind to the egg and, and assist the sperm in getting to the egg and penetrating the egg. So it's important in conventional insemination and in natural conception. But a lot of patients are doing ICSI, which is where we're injecting the sperm directly into the egg. So for that process, we don't want any of those extra cells. So we are stripping the egg of those cells so we can see you know, the anatomy of the egg. And we are looking for one abnormal shape, abnormal size. Um, we do get eggs that are too big and too small and kind of funky stuff. Um, and then the other thing we're looking for is a polar body. Eggs that can fertilize are mature. So we're looking for a mature egg and the way we tell an egg is mature is by that polar body. It's just a little smaller cell of cytoplasm that the egg has pushed out and it, it's just very visible on the top of the egg and that tells us that the egg is mature. And so we know that we can inject that egg and that it will fertilize. Immature eggs will not fertilize. So if we see an egg that doesn't have a polar body, it will not fertilize. Mm -hmm. So if there's an immature egg, um, I know different labs will do different things, but are, are there things you can do with an immature egg? and see if it will mature over time in the lab? Yes, yeah, so like you said, it is dependent on the lab. Our lab will keep immature eggs up until the time of ICSI, and if the egg has matured at that point, we will inject it. Some clinics will keep them overnight and inject them the next day, um, but they do typically have lower fertilization rates and blast rates because eggs mature a little bit better um, and a little are a little bit more hardy when they mature in the body. So we will inject them, but we oftentimes keep them separate because we wanna see if their rates of blastulation are different from eggs that have matured in the body. And we have found that they're slightly lower, actually significantly lower. Um, so we're not 
super confident in those eggs, uh, but we do keep them and we want to give patients every chance they can to get an embryo. So we will keep them and we will inject them. Um, It just depends on the clinic as to how long a clinic's willing to keep those immature eggs. Okay. And then, so there, because I've seen on my report, I don't know what it means. I think I see... There's like three different categories. There's something I don't remember. And then there's like M1 and M2. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So that first category that you couldn't couldn't remember is called yeah. a GV. Yes. Um, that's that, what it was. Yes. <laughs> and that stands for a germinal vesicle. And that is actually the state of development that your eggs are frozen at. Or not necessarily frozen at. Paused at when you're born. So every egg starts as a GV and then matures over time to an M1, and then fully matures to an M2. So the M2s are the mature eggs. Those are the ones that we want. M1s have a little possibility of maturing in the lab. GVs hardly ever mature by the time we get to ICSI, and those are often discarded. Oh, okay, gotcha. So when we see on our reports, if um, we have typically the M1s and M2s will get fertilized or at least attempt to be fertilized, is that right? If they mature, if it depends on the lab. So we will not inject an M1 that did not mature into an M2 by ICSI. Those will get discarded as well. Some clinics will inject an M1. It really just depends on the clinic. But like I said, they have lower blast rates. Um, so some clinics won't, won't inject them at all. But all M2s will be injected. Is there like anything we can do while, like before our retrievals to help as many eggs as we can uh, fertilize? Is there, like, is there anything we can do on our end, I guess, patients? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there is not really anything you can do. I know this is such a process of lack of control. You already feel like you don't have a lot of control. And this is another aspect where you also don't really have a lot of control. So when you're going in for your ultrasounds where your doctor is measuring your follicles, they are measuring them for a reason. Because the larger the follicle gets, the more likely that that egg inside the follicle is mature. Now, he can't know for sure. He or she cannot know for sure until we get them. Um, But they're hoping that if they're above, you know, 20 millimeters, that the egg inside of that follicle will be mature. Um, So there's not really anything you can do on your end. You know, if a patient is having a very high number of immature eggs, regularly, the doctor may decide to push them an extra day on their next cycle um, to kind of help give them a little bit more time to mature. It can also happen if the doctor during the egg retrieval is um, retrieving follicles that are smaller, which doctors will do sometimes. um, If they're there, they seem kind of borderline. The doctor will um, aspirate a follicle that that may not typically have a mature egg in it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so that's the egg. (laughs) And then, so let's talk just a little bit about the sperm. So a good looking, what does a good looking sperm look like? Yeah. So a good looking sperm is swimming straight, is swimming fast. You'd be surprised how many sperm swim in a circle or (laughs) like have, like have a bent neck and stuff. They swim kind of funky. So we want them to have a normal looking head, a normal looking mid piece, a normal looking tail and to be swimming straight. Um, that doesn't indicate DNA though. 
So I think there's a misconception that a normal looking sperm has to have normal DNA. And that's not the case. Um, We hope that they have normal DNA, but we can't see that. Um, We can't see that under the microscope. So um, our best bet is to pick one that looks really good um, in the hopes that it also has normal DNA. Mm -hmm. So because if you don't do ICSI, what happens? You just put the two of them in... I'm sorry, I don't know. In a Drop. petri no. dish or something That's exactly together. So okay, <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm not in the lab. I don't know. <laughs> no, I I totally get it. If we are not doing ICSI, that cumulus, like we talked about earlier, stays on the egg, and they literally go into a drop of media with a drop of sperm, and they get cultured overnight, and then we check them the next day to see if they fertilize. That's exactly what happens they get put in a dish and to do their thing in the drop okay and then so if you do something like ICSI or pixie or something like that then what does that process look like so if we are doing ICSI or pixie i've never done pixie um, but i know that's something that some clinics still offer we are selecting the sperm one by one we are picking up, if you have three eggs, we're picking up three sperm and injecting one sperm into each egg. So we are using a very small needle to pick up the sperm. We have to immobilize the tail because when sperm naturally bind to the egg and get into the egg, they, they are immobilized. They're not dead, they just don't move anymore. So we do that on our own. It helps release enzymes and things that the sperm needs to fertilize. And then we literally stick the needle into the egg and inject it and let this, you know, inject the sperm right into the egg. Do you do anything to the sperm before you select them? Like, do they get, I, I know I've heard like there's a washing or something that happens to them. Is that what happens? Correct. Yeah. So they get washed prior to being used for ICSI. So we can use a gradient to help separate some of the poor looking sperm um, from the better looking sperm. And so we can try to get the best looking sperm we can. And so they get washed and then we get, you know, then they get used in ICSI. Um, we do have some patients who use the Zymot device as well, which is a little chip. I've showed it on my page before, um, but it kind of does that selection for you. Um, and it's supposed to have different benefits um, from a wash. So um, the Zymod is supposed to reduce DNA fragmentation. And so the sperm that are coming through the Zymod device have the least amount of DNA fragmentation in the sample. Um, so it really depends on what your clinic uses. We use a combination. We have some patients who like to use a Zymod. We have some patients who um, prefer traditional wash. Um, in our experience, we haven't really used a Zymod that much to be able to say it makes a difference, um, but we know it doesn't hurt. So if a patient wants to add it, we're like, we're all for it. We know it won't hurt your chances and it could potentially help. So we're, let's do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, as far as the sperm go, when you're washing, um, you're washing away some of the other not so great stuff. And then, so after that, I know on my report, I've seen stuff like um, poor binding, um, like Uh, one of my um, embryology reports or like a preliminary report said poor binding. And I was like, what does poor binding mean? What does that mean? And is that an indication of poor sperm or what is that an indication of? So were you doing conventional insemination? ICSI. ICSI. 
Interesting. Because typically we are talking about binding when we're doing conventional insemination. So when we do conventional insemination and then look at the eggs the next day, if there are no sperm bound to the eggs, that's a bad sign. It's a sign that for some reason, either the egg or the sperm is missing the enzyme or protein needed to actually penetrate the egg. And unfortunately, most of the time, the only way to test for that is to do conventional insemination. Uh, so it's a very expensive diagnostic test. That's why I asked if you were doing conventional insemination because oftentimes, that oftentimes that test is hard to determine outside of conventional. They may have a test that they do um, for sperm binding. There's, there's some tests that are out there that can test sperm binding, but really the best way to test it is doing conventional insemination. Um, so they likely recommended ICSI based on whatever tests that they were doing to test sperm binding. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, now now that we have, let's, let's pretend everything's going very well. <laughs> yeah. we, have, we have an egg that's been inseminated, it's happy. Um, so let's talk about embryo. So like talk about the whole embryo grading thing is like so confusing to me because we get these calls and I know some people will get calls or reports from the embryologist and it's like oh it's a i don't know a 5aa or 4bb or a 3ab or whatever <laughs> i'm like what does that all mean what is good what is bad because you look at all these different charts online too because then you know when i get that call i'm like oh i don't know what that means so of course you know we go to google right so we go to google and i'm like trying to see these charts i'm like what's good what's bad and what does it all mean so can we go through what some like so the number means something, the first letter means something, and the second letter means something, right? Yeah, you've got you okay. got that part right. I just don't I, know what it means. <laughs> yeah, no. Embryo grading is by far the most asked question I get. Um, because it's very confusing. Not all clinics do it the same or even use the same system, so it can be very confusing. So most clinics, now I will say most, not all use SART grading, S-A-R-T. And that is an organization that's fertility related. I can't remember the, the acronym at the moment. Uh -huh. But they created a standard for embryo grading to try to get all clinics at least grading on the same, you know, scale. Metric, so, yeah. You know, yeah, metric. So all patients could kind of understand it. Again, it's not required, so some clinics don't use that. Um, but it consists of three things, like you said, a number and two letters. The first portion of the grade, which is the number at the front, corresponds to expansion of the embryo. And expansion of the embryo is not necessarily a good or bad thing. That is just a way for us to tell how mature an embryo is. So as an embryo grows, the shell of the embryo, which we call the zona, starts to thin. As the embryo gets bigger and pushes out on the zona, it thins um, and stretches. So as the numbers get higher, the thinner the zona gets. So if you have a one, that's a very thick zona. It's likely a more immature embryo. It may need another day of culture until it's ready to be biopsied. It likely has a lower number of cells. It's not a bad thing. It's just a little immature needs a little bit more time. Um, and then we get up to grades like fours, threes and fours are very common. Those are great quality, you know, 
not quality because it doesn't matter about the quality. Threes and fours um, are great expansion grades. You know, it gets to the point where the zona is starting to thin. There are a lot more cells in the embryo. An embryo that's a three or a four would likely be ready to freeze, to be transferred, to be biopsied. And then we get to five and six, where that means that the zona is not always completely there. So a five is an embryo that's hatching, meaning that the embryo has started to kind of poke out of its zona like a, like a chicken, you know, starting to peck its way out. Maybe the beak is out. And so, you know, an embryo, you know, an embryo's got part of the embryo starting to come out of the zona. A lot of times these look like the double snowmen or people think that they're splitting into twins. It's really the embryo starting to hatch out of that zona. And then six is where the embryo is fully hatched. It's completely left its shell. It is just the embryo, it has no outer shell. Um, and all of those grades are all very common and don't indicate quality. The next portion of the grade is that first letter. That first letter corresponds with the ICM and that stands for inner cell mass and that's what becomes a baby. So that's a very important part of the embryo. We can see that in the embryo. It is a cluster of cells that are more compact than the rest of the embryo. And so we're grading that on a letter grade like you would in school. A, B, C, D, doesn't typically go any lower than that. Um, so, you know, A is the best. Even past a C, I don't see any clinics really grading Ds, or you wouldn't see that on your report. Typically, if an embryo is a D quality, they're not gonna freeze it. Um, or transfer it, things like that. So um, A is good, B is fair, and C is poor based on SART standards. Um, and then that last letter in the grade is the trifectorum, and that is what will become the placenta. So we wanna see a large number of trifectoderm cells. We want them to, see, to be somewhat symmetrical. We don't wanna see a bunch of them dying, that sort of thing. Um, and again, it's graded A through C, with A being good, B being fair, and C being, for, uh, C being poor, excuse me. So then when you combine those two together, you'll have AA, AB, BB, BA, BC, all of that. Um, and so then SART gives guidelines on which two combined are good, fair, and poor. So good is AA and AB, fair is BB and BA, and then poor is anything with a C or lower. So BC, CB, CC, those are all considered poor quality embryos. And it, it sounds very harsh, but I feel like the more standardized you make it, the, the better it is <laughs> to understand. Um, and that's not to say that poor quality embryos don't make babies because they do. Um, it's just a way for us to know that this embryo may not be as hardy. We're putting them through a lot of stress in the lab, freezing them, taking chunks of cells from them, thawing them, you know, all that sort of stuff. So we wanna know if an embryo is poor quality, it may not be as likely to survive all that we're putting it through. Um, so that may not be the first one we choose if we're thawing an embryo because that one is more likely to, to die during the thaw process or during the biopsy process. Okay, yeah, so that brings up another question, I guess two questions. So one of them is the freeze-thaw process. How often or what is the possibility that the embryo doesn't survive the freeze-thaw? So the percentage is low, but not as low as I think most people would think. If we're getting a survival rate of embryo thawing 
at 90%, we're doing good. We want to see at least 90% survival rate of embryos, which is not as high as you would think. That's 10 out of 100 embryos are not surviving a thaw. Um, and so it's not as uncommon as people think. And it's always heartbreaking for us because we don't want yeah. them. We don't want them to. Right. You know, totally. The patient has prepared this whole time for this day. Um, and it all comes down to that morning when we're thawing it. Um, but I would say that the chance of survival is relatively high. And you think 90 percent is pretty good. That's yeah. A. You know, yeah. In school. Yeah. 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 Uh, but there is still that 10 percent of embryos that aren't surviving the thaw. What are the factors that are associated with the embryos not making it through the freeze-thaw? So grade is one of them. Lower quality embryos um, typically are more likely to die in that process. The other thing that I've noticed um, is the expansion grade of embryos. So embryos that are fully hatched, meaning have an expansion grade of six, when they have been frozen, typically are more likely to die during the thawing process because they don't have that zona protecting them. So that zona can help protect them from some of the liquid nitrogens, some of the cryomedia. So when they don't when they don't have that zona, they're more likely to be exposed to cryo damage during the freeze or during the thaw. So a lot of times I see more cell death in those types of embryos. Um, also depends on the technician. You know, if a technician didn't freeze the embryo properly or didn't thaw it properly, then then that's a problem as well. That's much less likely because by the time embryologists are working on patient cases, they've done lots of these at this point. Um, and the other is the device. So clinics prefer to thaw devices that they freeze on. So there are lots of different devices that you can freeze an embryo on. And typically a clinic uses one device exclusively. We use a cryotop. All of our patients are frozen on a cryotop. But if we get a patient from another facility, we can't guarantee that it's frozen on a cryotop. That's why if you decide to move your embryos, we're asking the clinic that you're moving from all this information about when your embryo was frozen, what was frozen on, what media was used, who froze it, all these things, because we may not be as familiar with that device or with that protocol. And so that can that can increase likelihood of them not surviving because the tech, you know, the embryologist may not be as comfortable with that device. Mm -hmm. So if it's like a five, six, excuse me, a five, six expansion, are those better for fresh transfers than they are for frozen transfers? Or is that not does that not play into it? I personally think so. So this is a, a, a personal, based on my personal experience. Um, I find that fives and sixes are great for fresh transfers and are also great if they've expanded after we've thawed them. So if we thaw them and they're a four when we thaw them, you know, we do laser hatch them and then they're sitting in the incubator for a couple hours. So there are plenty that hatch out before the transfer. Those are also great. What the concern comes is if they're fives and sixes at the time of freeze is when I'm a little bit more concerned about them surviving the thaw when I'm thawing them. Mm -hmm. And what's involved in like thawing them? Do like, cause you talked about the devices. So like what happens when they thaw? This is so fascinating. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, no, like, tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially we are taking out a little tub of um, liquid nitrogen, which I actually have a video coming on this soon. It's already recorded. I just haven't posted it um, of me actually thawing something. So it's in a kind of styrofoam box, if you will, of liquid nitrogen. We're pulling the patient's cane out of the liquid nitrogen. It's always stored in liquid nitrogen. So we have it keeping, keeping it there cold. 
And essentially, we're moving it through different types of media. So we want to take it from the liquid nitrogen to the media as fast as possible. So we're basically pulling it from liquid nitrogen and moving it very quickly into the first set of media. And then at that point, you're moving it from different types of media. So the freezing process, it's not like you're freezing something in your freezer. The media almost puts the embryo in a glass light state and it dehydrates the embryo. So all of the, the natural media that's in the embryo, in the cells, during the freezing process gets sucked out and replaced with cryoprotectant media. And so then in the thawing process, we have to suck out all that cryoprotectant media and put in all the nutrients, sugar, protein that the embryo needs to kind of rehydrate. So that's essentially what we're doing during the thaw process is we're walking it through different types of media to remove that cryoprotectant and introduce back in the hardy media that it needs to, to wake up. Mm-hmm. And have you, so... You know, now that I guess I sh- we should have talked about this before you froze it, but let's backtrack. <laughs> so let's say you were to biopsy the embryos, right? So the biopsy only is occurring in the trifectoderm, right? Is that no? Is that right? Correct. No, that's correct. We don't want to take any of the ICM because that's what becomes a baby. That's a really important part of the embryo. So we're taking typically six to eight cells out of hundreds that the embryo has um and we're taking that from the trifectoderm part of the embryo Mm -hmm. and so that gets sent off to genetic testing uh for people who are testing their embryos and then have you seen so then you get the results and i don't know how your clinic works but depending on the clinic sometimes embryologist calls or sometimes your fertility physician calls but either way you get the results back do you ever find that some of these beautiful looking embryos come back with abnormal genetic testing or some of these like so-so looking embryos come back with normal genetic testing. Does that ever happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. All the time. We'll have embryos that are absolutely beautiful and we're like, this is going to make a baby. This has to, this has to be normal and it will come back abnormal. So we can't always use the morphological grade of an embryo to determine the genetic makeup. Um, that's something we can't see. You know, if the the damage in the DNA affects the embryo's growth, then it's correlating with the poorer grade. Um, but that's not always the case. So sometimes a, a DNA abnormality in the embryo may not affect how the embryo grows or how it looks or its grade. So it may look fantastic, but then has a, a you know, an abnormality genetically. So that absolutely happens. That's why I say poor quality embryos do make babies because they are normal. There are some that are normal. There are some that make babies, you know, so don't don't rule out those those poor quality embryos just because they may not have the grade of, you know, 4AA because there are 4AAs that are abnormal. Yeah. Well, I, one of the reasons why I want to bring that up is because I didn't want people to get too discouraged if their embryos aren't beautiful because that happens to me every time because I'm old I'm 41 and so my embryos are always I usually only have one but it's always like hairy I'm, I'm always like waiting and it's always kind of like uh it's not the best um but it, it's like it doesn't matter until for me until I get that 
report back, the genetic report back to say, yes, it's euploid or normal or not normal, you know, abnormal. <clears throat> so absolutely. I, there's there's yeah. no no discouragement of of poor quality embryos. Um, you know, like you said, that that genetic report, you know, makes a big difference and they do make babies. So so not not to discourage anyone who has poor quality embryos. They do make babies. Um, so, you know, this is conventional, right? Conventional, um, you take an egg from the two parents. Um, and so there's also for people who are older, like I am, who are maybe, you know, 40 or over, maybe even a little bit younger, we might use donors. So do you notice, um, for like us over 40, do you notice a big difference when we use donor eggs? Like the blast formation is just so much better. Or do you ever notice that some donor eggs also have problems with blast formation and that sort of thing? We do sometimes notice that donors have egg quality issues. So egg quality issues are more common, I would say, in patients a little bit older, maybe closer to 40 or over 40. But that does not um, mean that patients under 35 don't have egg quality issues because we do still see them. Um, a lot of times, one, we either can't see if there's an egg issue because not all egg issues are visible to us as embryologists, or two, you know, we, we um, notice them, we don't know until egg retrieval day. So a lot of times donors have a large quantity of eggs and we can sometimes predict that you know, when they're coming in for screening and scanning and things like that. But we don't, we can't see the eggs until we get them in the lab. Um, and oftentimes if we've used a donor before, they didn't have good blast formation, we typically will not suggest them again for a patient who, um, who is using donor gametes. And we also inform the, the donor of that. So if we get a donor who has, you know, egg quality issues that we can visualize and you know we're really seeing some kind of abnormal stuff we will let the donor know and just say hey we this is what we noticed when we did your retrieval um that may be something to consider if you're considering having your own family i'll keep that in mind um so we do definitely see some abnormalities in donor gametes as well Mm -hmm. for those who are like 35 and older because that's the biggest population that are listening, although there's a small segment now that's kind of growing under 35, which is great because I'm so glad they're here listening to all of this, you know, so that they can like prevent them from struggling like me. Um, but so for some of us who are older and I don't know how many, I don't know how often you guys get, you know, older patients in your clinic, but what do you see as like maybe, you know, top three to five things that are um, not great with embryos for those of us who are older, um, either, you know, males who are older or females who are older or a combination of both. Yeah. So for patients who have eggs that are older, the biggest thing that we see is aneuploidy in their embryos. They have a much higher, um, percentage of their embryos that are abnormal, um, and too much lower egg quantity. So sometimes, you know, oftentimes that DNA abnormalities that show up when you're a little bit older can be overcome by having more eggs, but they're seeing both. So they're seeing a higher, you know, higher probability of DNA abnormalities and lower eggs. So we're battling both of those things. Um, And it can be hard to balance those because um, you can tweak protocols a little bit to get more eggs, but you can also treat protocols to get better quality eggs. So it's kind of hard to find that balance in the middle where we're getting a good number of eggs, but also good quality eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- some of us who maybe end up finding that, like I said, we need a donor because our quality is just 
so bad, or maybe quantity is just so low that it's beyond the point where we're able to use our own eggs. I know we had this conversation before when we were talking, but fresh versus frozen. What are your thoughts yes. on that? I know you have thoughts yes. on that. I do, have, I do have very uh, <laughs> strong thoughts on this in terms of donor eggs. So um, I work at a clinic that has a donor egg program. And we did, at first, we did both fresh and frozen eggs. And from our experience, the frozen eggs never did as well as the fresh eggs. Um, so keep something to keep in mind if you are choosing a donor and whether that donor is local or if that donor is from a bank and you have to you know, get frozen eggs, eggs are one cell, one cell. Um, and so they're very delicate. And when we freeze embryos, we expect to have some cell death. We expect some of the cells to not survive, but it's fine because the embryo has hundreds of cells. When you have frozen eggs, and one cell dies, that's a whole egg, um, which is a, a lot when you're buying a lot of six and only five survive. Um, you know, that's a big um, decrease now in the eggs that you have to work with. Yes, a much bigger risk. Um, the other thing is we don't see as great blast formation with frozen eggs as we do fresh. Um, so my recommendation, I am not a doctor, remember, um, is to always go with fresh eggs. And, you know, if you have the ability to have a donor that you're looking for, that is your ethnicity or whatever you've decided to choose your donor based on, um, if you have, if that donor is able to, if you're able to get fresh eggs from that donor, I would always go for those fresh eggs over frozen. Um, they're, they're, the frozen eggs are just so delicate and uh, it takes a very skilled embryologist to thaw frozen eggs. So they could have been, most of the banks, the donor banks, have very skilled embryologists freezing eggs for them, but they go all over the country. Um, the people that are freezing your, you know, the donor eggs that you've gotten aren't the same people who are thawing them. Um, so it, it can really be a technical thing in terms of who is thawing your egg, you know, your eggs. You really want to make sure that your clinic thaws a lot of eggs. If they use, if they, you know, if you're going for a, a donor that has frozen eggs, just ask your clinic, you know, how many frozen egg cycles do you do a year? Because if it's one you may want to reconsider either that donor or consider that, reconsider that clinic because if they're only freezing, if they're only doing one frozen egg cycle a year, that means they've frozen. They've have that means that they have thawed six eggs or twelve eggs the whole year. So they're not getting a lot of practice or training on thawing those eggs. Um, and so it kind of brings up this next question: Is how do you know when you have a good lab? So how do you know if you're using a good lab? I mean, because it's not like usually when we seek our fertility specialist where you don't look at the lab a whole lot. You find the doctor, right? Because you think like, ah, oh, this is this is all it is. But it really is a whole team that's helping bring everything together. So how do you know that the lab that your doctor is with is a good lab? Absolutely. And not to negate the doctor, like you really have to find a good balance. You want a good doctor as well as a good lab staff. Um, but keep in mind, we're the ones taking care of your future little ones. So you do want to make sure that you're at a good lab. Um, the first thing that I always suggest people to ask or to investigate on their website if they have it um, is CAP accreditation. Um, CAP stands for College of American Pathologists. This is a voluntary accreditation that a lab can 
can get that is the highest standards that you can get in the United States. Um, so if a lab is cap accredited, that means they're being held to the highest standards possible in the United States. And that means, you know, equipment wise, staffing wise, I mean, you plan for two years in advance for your cap your cap inspection because they're, you know, they come and inspect your lab every two years. Every year you have an interim inspection that you have to send off materials for. So it's really, you know, a great, the best that we've got here in terms of um, regulations. Um, so they're, you're, like I said, they're checking all your equipment, all of your staffing, they're looking at your rates, your quality control, they're looking at all of those things, your protocols, making sure you have up to par protocols and standards um, for lab, you know, embryo growth, as well as um, chain of custody. Because a lot of, you know, that's another question I get is how do I make sure that my embryos are my embryos? Um, ask about their cap accreditation. Um, so that's always my first go-to. And then the other thing is ask your doctor when you're in for a consultation, what is their pregnancy rates? They should have all of that information. Every clinic should be keeping that information together. Now, SART also does some of that. Um, and I feel like sometimes SART can be a little bit misleading because it doesn't take into consideration all of the, the aspects that go into the statistics. Um, but we actually keep a standard of um, rates outside of SART. Um, that's, you know, that we've now crunched the numbers on. Um, and so your clinic should be able to tell you what their pregnancy rates are you know, their miscarriage rates, their ongoing pregnancy rates, their, you know, like I have stats on what my fertilization rates are, my blast formations. So each person in the clinic has their own stats and then we have lab stats. So all of that stuff is really important um, and they should be willing to share that with you um, if they're not, one, if they don't have it, that's not great. <laughs> and two, if they're not willing to share it, um, there's a reason why. Uh, so, so something, those, those are two things to keep in mind. And uh, your doctor, I know there's a lot of things to talk about at your consult. I know there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, but if you can squeeze one or two questions in about the lab, um, you may be grateful that you did in the long run to make sure that they're a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. And um, as far as um, if we get the opportunity to speak with an embryologist, not all of us do. Some some clinics will um, give the uh, patient the opportunity to talk to their embryologist. So if we get that opportunity, what questions would you suggest that we ask? Like, what are some things we should always ask our embryologist if we get the chance to talk to them? That's a really good question. I would ask them, what are their grades? You know, if, they, if you haven't gotten embryo grades yet, Ask them, do, are they doing SART grading? Um, if they are, is there a standard to what quality embryos they will freeze or biopsy? Because some clinics are willing to freeze and biopsy poor quality embryos, some are not. Um, so that may be helpful, helpful for you to know because if you are someone who typically has poor quality embryos and want to give those embryos a chance, and if they don't freeze you know, BC quality embryos, then Essentially, if that's all you're getting, then you're not you're not even seeing those embryos as a possibility because there are a lot of embryos that or a lot of, you know, two cell embryos that grow into blasts, but aren't good enough quality to freeze based on that lab standard. Um, so you can have a blast formation rate of 
60%, which is fantastic, but your usable blast rate, you know, the, the embryos that were actually freezing, you know, biopsying or transferring could be 30% because they're they're very selective on their embryos. Uh, but you may be the person who wants that. You only want the best of the best. So it really depends on, on what you're wanting. Um, but that's a great question to ask as well is to see, you know, what is your standard for what you freeze and what you thaw? Um, and then anything else you're curious about, you know, I'm always open to answer any question a patient has. Uh, you know, we can't give medical advice because we're not physicians. Um, but if a patient asks me about chain of custody, I am happy to go through how how we label everything, how verification works, um, all of that sort of thing. So really anything you're curious about, go for it if you have the chance to talk to your embryologist. And then how about if they call you with results? Like if they're calling you with your uh, embryology report, you know, your fertilization rate and all that stuff. What are some things we should ask our embryologists at that time? But if we've got everyone in our lab is having a poor cycle, we're investigating. We're, we're saying, you know, is the, is the, is there something wrong with the media? Is there something wrong with the incubators Maybe the gas lines? Because that's uncommon. Um, so you could, you could always ask that, you know, a general question, you know, is my fert rate or blast rate up to par with everyone else in the lab? this cycle. Um, and you know, that, that can be an easy yes or no question. They don't have to give any other, you know, patient information on that. Um, just to see, you know, like I said, everyone's different. You know, if you're 40 or 41, comparing yourself to someone who's 25 or 26, that's obviously gonna be different, but it can give you an overall view of if their lab is, is if you're an outlier or if you're on par with the rest of the, of the pack. Yeah. And so what are the most common questions you get? So the most common question by far is embryo grading, <laughs> what we went through before, all the time. I would say a couple times a week I get a question about embryo grading, uh, which I get it. it's very confusing and something that is never explained, like ever. Um, so I get why, why patients have questions on that because you're just given this grade and you're like, I don't know what this is supposed to mean <laughs> and what that means for my care. Um, the other question I get often is fresh transfer versus a frozen transfer. So an FET versus, you know, a fresh embryo transfer. Um, and it really, that one is really dependent on the patient. We do probably 95% of our patients are doing frozen transfers. Um, and there are some good reasons why frozen transfers may be better for your particular situation. If you're doing PGTA testing, you're gonna be doing a frozen transfer. Um, it also allows us to prep your uterus as perfect as we can get it. Um, when you're doing a retrieval, um, you're on retrieval medications. You're not on lining, perfecting medication. You're on medication to help you grow embryo or grow eggs, excuse me. So um, it allows us to really focus on that lining and that's why we're there. Um, the other thing is, Retrievals are a lot on your body. You've been injecting yourself for two weeks sometimes at this point. You've just gone under anesthesia. Um, and so then for five days later to have a fresh transfer, a lot of patients are just, they just need a break. Um, and I get that mentally, physically, uh, pocketbook wise, um, it's, it, you know, it's a lot. So um, I think that's another reason that patients prefer the, the frozen transfers is they just need a little bit of a break to regroup, you know, maybe save a little bit more money. Um, take a little break physically and, and be ready, you know, in a month later to do that, that frozen transfer. Mm -hmm. And another thing that comes up, and at least um, I talked about this before about like my first IVF cycle, no one told me what it would look like from the number of eggs retrieved 
to how many blasts I would get. And I feel like that happens a lot where our expectations haven't been managed to know what the loss is to expect. So what's the average loss that we can expect? Obviously, it's it's different. It's not the same for every, everyone. But in general, what's the loss that we might expect from the number of eggs retrieved to the, noble, nor, um, to the number of blasts formed? Yeah, that's a great question because it is um, all about expectation management. And um, I think a lot of patients don't get that information and then they're blindsided and, and you know, it's, it's hurtful. It's, it's, I'm sure it's devastating to, to feel excited about this number that you have and then realize five days later that it's not even close to what you started with. Um, so I think that needs to be explained a lot more, but I will explain it. Yeah. <laughs> so, really the best the best way for me to describe it is based on day one rates, based on your fertilization. Um, so it can be very hard to tell how many eggs will be mature out of a, out of a batch. It's it's usually anywhere from ooh, 70, 80% to 100% of eggs can be mature. Like we'll have patients who have all their eggs mature. Then we'll have patients where half of them are mature. So that one's, that one's a little bit harder to give um, a it's a big, it's a wider range, I guess I should say. Um, but from fertilization to blast formation, we typically expect about 50% of fertilized eggs to make it to blastocyst. Um, so that's a good kind of indicator on, okay, if I have six, six eggs that have fertilized, I can expect two or three embryos and maybe able to give you some more of a realistic expectation of what you're looking at in a couple days. Um, and that's also different from usable blasts, like we said. So um, not all blasts that are, you know, are that grow are ones that we freeze or that we biopsy. Um, typically usable blast rate, we'd love it at 50% from fertilization. Um, it's usually more, um, it's usually closer to 40%, uh, between 40 and 50% of um, eggs that are fertilized on day one make it to usable blasts um and that's a that's pretty standard and if you're significantly lower than that then we're typically seeing an issue like an egg quality issue that's when we're when we're diving deeper into is this an egg quality issue or seeing a sperm issue because if we have a patient who have 10 who has 10 eggs fertilized on day one and gets one blast that's usable. We're like something, this is not, their cycle didn't go well. You know, did we see any egg quality issues? Did we see any sperm issues? Um, because that's that's much lower than what we would have expected. But it's still, I mean, that loss is drastic. You know what I mean? Like that, I know when I was going in, I got my very first cycle, I got eight eggs retrieved. I'm like, sweet, eight. I'm gonna come out with eight, eight embryos that I get to use, right? Like, sweet, that's so amazing. But then like only I think five of my eggs were mature and then I think I only made two or three blasts and then those were biopsied and zero normal. But that kind of follows that 50% and then, you know, two, which is slightly higher than that. But I mean, that's it's like that's a lot of loss <laughs> from total eggs retrieved to final blasts. So. I mean, I, I know the reason why I bring this up too, because at least from our standpoint, from the patient side and from my side, there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of um, like beating up of ourselves. Like we just tear ourselves apart. Like what could we have done? But that's the expectation. I mean, like the standard is that we expect to lose more than half of our like 
um, em- or I guess embryos, but our eggs, for sure, we expect to lose more than half of it. And that's normal. That's like a normal part of the process. So like, I just want to make sure that like people hear that. And so they don't have to beat themselves up so much thinking that they did something wrong when that's the expectation. Yeah, the expectation is is much lower than I think a lot of people think. And you do, you end up, you know, blaming yourself and you hope, is it because I had that extra slice of pizza at at lunch or I didn't exercise as well as I could have or you know I started this process too late or all of those things I know go through people's heads Um, but really the expectation when you're when we're seeing 40 or 50 percent usable blast formation that's great we're we're excited for a patient so I think having those expectations verbalized and understood before the process can really help mitigate some of that um, self self sabotaging and guilt and all that you know self bashing sort of thing because really that on our end we're like oh my gosh this patient got fifty percent blast that's awesome that's what we want so we want to see that's all that's on par with our expectations and the norm but it's I know it's a much different perspective from the patient side yeah because I like nobody told me that <laughs> you know like my first go around nobody told me that and I was like devastated it's like oh my gosh like. I have nothing I can't really use very much. I only got two blasts. Like how like right now I'd be excited with two blasts. I only make one now. But I mean, you know, at one point in time, I was like, oh, my gosh, like had I known that like, hey, that's not too bad. Like, you know, even though they're abnormal. But I mean, still, it's like, oh, that not knowing that is makes such a big difference, I think, on, on That's from our end. The education is so important and why I started the TikTok is our goal or my goal I guess with with the education is to empower you in your care and on your journey because the more you know the more peace of mind you have throughout the whole process you're not having even you know you may have it's a it's a hard journey even when you have all the information but it's it's a little bit easier when you have some knowledge going into it on what to expect and what's normal versus what I may need to be concerned about and that sort of thing so it's really important and you know I'm glad that I've been able to get the platform that I have to be able to educate on these things yeah I think you know and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up too is because you know give yourself some grace like if you have lost more than 50% of your eggs that is not abnormal and that that is part of the process and like you don't have to hate yourself so much because I know I did but I also didn't know you know like and if you don't know you don't know and the other thing is, if we if we were if we always got a hundred percent, we wouldn't be pushing your ovaries so hard to produce more more eggs. You know, if we were able to guarantee or to have a ninety percent pregnancy rate with retrieving one egg, that's what we'd be doing. Um, but you know, that's not the case. So that's why we're like, we had a, it's a numbers game. It's always a numbers game, um, which can be you know very hard when you're going through this process. Totally. Yeah. Um, Okay, I have some questions that people sent in. Do you mind if we start with those? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, perfect. Um, Let's see. Any difference in success rates using day five versus day six embryos? Only very slightly. So um, I think it's only something like 30% of patients have 
embryos on day five, but 80% of patients have embryos on day six. So um, that's another one. That's another one that people don't explain to you. Everyone's always like day five, day five, day five. Majority of patients don't have anything on day five um, or, or have very little on day five. So those day six embryos are very common um, and their pregnancy rates between the two are minuscule to the point where it's not statistically significant. So there is a difference. Um, day six is slightly lower, but it's in our practice, we're not, um, we're not counseling patients really any differently because the statistically it's not a huge, it's not significant. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah. lots of day six embryos make babies. What about day seven? Because sometimes they'll push to day seven, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we push to day seven t- sometimes if we have a, an embryo that's borderline. Now, that one is uh, typically, you know, more s- statistically significant in its pregnancy rates. Um, so at that point, there gets to be a point in embryo culture where the embryo is kind of done all it's going to do. And usually that's by the end of, of day six. Um, so the embryo is kind of become very stagnant after that point. Um, So pregnancy rates for day seven are definitely um, lower than day five and day six. I don't know the exact, um, you know, rates, but day seven embryos, we are only freezing a day seven or biopsying a day seven embryo if it's absolutely beautiful. If it's borderline, it's a no because it's a day seven. Um, And we're absolutely always transferring a day seven embryo last if you have multiple embryos. The day seven is going to be the last one we're transferring um, because it's it does have lower pregnancy rates. Okay. Um, your thoughts on better quality eggs for 40 plus women if we retrieve earlier per preliminary studies? So I haven't read I haven't read the study that they may be talking about. Um, there is kind of a point with older patients um, that they don't typically respond as well to stimulation medication. So they're on stimulation medication longer than sometimes younger patients. And so that can affect egg quality. Um, we call them hard boiled eggs. I know it's not so bad, <laughs> but they, they've, been, they've been in there for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, you know, uh, so sometimes they can come It's a out quiche a at little, that point. <laughs> exactly. They can come out a little hard boiled at that point. So uh-huh. um, the, the balance with this comes with making sure that you are getting mature eggs because if we we don't wait too long you know we don't want to wait too long because they can be you know the egg quality can can cause some issues at that point but we also don't want to go too early um because then we risk having more immature eggs mm-hmm. so it, it's a balance um but there are definitely um some egg quality issues that come into play when you're you know having on stimulation medications for a really long time okay what's what's max What's the longest you think you can go? Oh my goodness. We had a patient, oh my goodness. We, we, <laughs> some of our doctors have pushed really long. So I think they should go uh, 18 days. They did oh my gosh. 18 days. Yes, I was like, oh my goodness. Her eggs are definitely boiled at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, would say, I would say most common is 11, 12 days. Um, I would say with some of our um, older patients and patients who may be a little bit slower to responding to medication, we're typically saying, th- 13 days, 14 days is kind of pushing it. Uh, but like I said, we did have the patient who had an 18 day stem and she did get an, uh, she did get an embryo, which I was, I was hopeful for her, but I yes. was realistic in that yes. it's been a while. So yeah. Um, yeah, I would say common is 11 or 12 days. Okay. Um, 38, almost 39, would you transfer one or two frozen embryos? 
That would depend on the embryos themselves and kind of on the patient's history. So that's the other thing is fertility is so um, individual that it can be hard to kind of standardize some of these questions. So what we're looking at when we're deciding whether a patient should transfer one or two is a couple things. Their age definitely comes into play. Um, their prior fertility history. Have they had multiple failed transfers? We're more likely to do more than one embryo. Um, are their embryos tested? If they are genetically normal, we're more likely to do one embryo. Um, if they're not tested, then we're, we're more willing to do two embryos. Um, so those things kind of come into play when we're, you know, when a doctor, it's not the conversation I have, when a doctor is, uh, you know, counseling a patient on how many embryos they should transfer, they're talking about those things. How many failed cycles have you had? You know, are your embryos tested, untested, all of those sorts of things, because uh, multiples do come with a lot of risk for uh, mother and baby. So we really want to try to mitigate those risks uh, if we can. Mm hmm. Um, this one says, I am 38, 39 in December. We have two frozen embryos. Should we PGTA test them? This is another one that is hard to give a straight answer because, um, embryos that have already been frozen and then to thaw them, biopsy them and refreeze them, you know, like we were saying, it put, we already are putting a lot of stress on these embryos. So to then thaw them and biopsy them is putting more stress on them. At that point, we're looking at their grades. If they're higher quality grades, um, we're more likely to say, yeah, you know, we can thaw them. They may go down a grade or, you know, a grade on the ICM and trifectoderm when we thaw them because we are, you know, putting them through a little bit of stress. But if there's an embryo that's already poor quality, we're kind of advising against doing that because they were already, you know, kind of borderline to begin with and us thawing them, you know, may, may, may put them kind of over the edge at that point. Um, but then you also have to weigh, like, if that information um, can give you clarity on what your next steps could be, then it, it may be worth it to you. You know, if you've got good quality embryos or even borderline quality embryos um, and you're kind of between transferring them or doing another cycle, you know, thawing them and biopsy them may give you some clarity. If they're both abnormal, then, you know, you've saved that time on, on doing a transfer when you knew they were abnormal. Um, so those are some things to consider. It's, it's really hard to, for me to be like, you should do this or you should do that because it's very dependent on what your family goals are, your financial situation, your timeline, all of those things come into play um, when you're making those decisions like that. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, talk to your doctor about the pros and cons of each and then decide together which way is the best way to go. Okay. Um, can you biopsy a 4BC embryo? Can a 4BC be euploid? Um, so it depends on the clinic. Um, our clinic, we don't biopsy anything uh, lower than a fair quality. So because that C is in there, that is considered a poor quality embryo. So that's not something that we would biopsy at our clinic. But again, it depends on what, you know, what your clinic's uh, threshold is for biopsying and freezing. Um, so your clinic can biopsy it. Um, if that's what their protocol is. And it can be normal. We have embryos. I've seen embryos from other clinics that we get in, and there we have lots of BC embryos that are um, normal. So it's it's like I, it's, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes based on the grade if it's going to be uh, normal or not. Or not. Uh, but it's definitely very possible that it's normal. Can you make the request to your lab to say, hey, even if there is a 
poor quality embryo, a BC or a CC or something to, to biopsy it anyway. Can you make that request? Yes, we've had patients do it. Um, you know, and they've asked the question, what are you willing to biopsy and what are you not willing to biopsy? And, you know, we'll say this is what this is what our, our typical protocol is. And they have requested um, we've had a couple patients do that request to, you know, have everything that's a blast frozen or, you know, anything up to BC can be frozen. Anything that's a CC, no. Um, it, it makes it a little bit harder on our end um, to not have a standard across the board. But we're typically pretty accommodating of things like that because we understand patients are going through, you know, it's, it's a little big process, so we get it. Um, but we do like to counsel them that that typically will cost them more money because that means more embryos will be sent to testing. So as long as they understand those things and are okay with that, then we're, we're fine with sending them off um, or biopsying them or freezing them or, or, or whatever they prefer. So um, that is a conversation if, if that's something you're interested in um, to have with your doctor, to have with your, your lab to see if that's an option for you. Because mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about someone like me who only makes one blast, right? So let's say there's a chance I make two, but one of them isn't great quality. I only, I'm only getting one to two at a time. I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do it. You know, because if it's bad, it's bad. But if it's not, it's a chance, you know? So yeah. for, for me, I'm... They, yeah. That's what their perspective is, too, is it's a chance at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely a valid a valid point. Um, what is assured hatching exactly? Do they hatch on their own or is it totally needed? Um, so I, uh, I think they're talking about assisted hatching. They may call it assured at their clinic, um, um, but we, in my experience, we call it assisted hatching. And that is when we are using a laser to um, kind of laser a very small hole in the embryo after it's been thawed. So this happens on the day of your frozen embryo transfer. Um, And so the reason that we do this is the embryo has to hatch out of the zona for you to implant. So implantation occurs between the embryo and your uterine lining, not the zona. The zona is gone at that point. So it has to be able to get out of that zona. And the freezing process can sometimes harden the zona around the embryo, making it harder for the embryo to naturally hatch out. So we zap it just a little bit to give it an opening if it starts to struggle. Um, It is not by any means required. We've had patients who are very against hatching for their own reasons. They may have done their own research. That is fine. Um, They've decided they don't want hatching and that's fine. And we've, we've, I'm pretty sure that patient has a baby at this point. Um, so it's it's really dependent. We know that it doesn't hurt the embryo because we're not touching the embryo. Um, when embryos are frozen, we collapse them into a, like a tiny little ball. And so there's a lot of space between the embryo and the zona. So we're not really getting close to the embryo at that point. Um, but it is, it is by all means not required. Um, we know that it can help. So that's so that's why we do it. Um, but it's not it's not necessarily something that you have to do. Um, how do I set myself up for a good embryo transfer? So there are a lot of things medically that you can do, which I'm sure your doctor has, you know, taught you about your protocol and all that sort of thing. Um, and then there are also some like wives tales sort of things. So I don't, I don't know. It depends on all on what you're into. You know, we have, I have seen since I have joined, you know, the social media infertility community that people have lots of different, uh, diets that they'll follow and things that they'll do and, Um, I know some people will do like the warm broth thing um, and keeping your feet warm and all of that. Um, Those are all essentially wives tales, but if they 
um, psychologically make you feel better, we are all for it. We will support you in wherever you are at in your journey. Um, There are some things that our patients enjoy doing, um, like acupuncture. A lot of our patients enjoy acupuncture. Um, And now acupuncture is really only... um, effective if you've been doing it for a while. So um, the theory is that acupuncture helps blood flow to your uterus, um, but we're also seeing patients who have been doing acupuncture for a few months. Um, So if you haven't been doing acupuncture, starting it on the day of your transfer may not be the best idea, but if it's something that you're interested in, definitely talk to your doctor. They may have, um, like we have, we refer people to, we have an acupuncturist that comes to the clinic and we'll do acupuncture before your transfer. Um, So that can be something to ask your doctor about. Um, Generally, we suggest a balanced, healthy diet, regular exercise. We want you to have, you know, healthy mind and body um those are those are our general suggestions is lifestyle you know maybe not have you know five or six drinks a week try to limit caffeine to you know a normal amount uh pizza here and there is fine but you know we want to balance that with some healthier food you know throughout the week just just in general a balanced lifestyle um you know we're not expecting anyone to eat eat perfectly or exercise, you know, twice a day. It's, it's unrealistic. We want something that is, is realistic and doable for a good period of time for a patient. Um, how long can embryos be frozen for? I get this question sometimes, and I always love this question because um, it's essentially forever. Um, it, we obviously, I've never lived forever, um, but uh, in theory, they can be frozen for as long as there is liquid nitrogen there to keep them frozen. So as long as there's no catastrophic event um, and they are kept safe in liquid nitrogen, they can essentially be frozen forever, which is really crazy. (laughs) Yeah, so cool. Um, I think we talked about this earlier. What are the chances of embryos not thawing? Yeah, um, we talked about this one. It's, I would say embryo survival rate um, is between 85 and 90%. 90% is, um, would be probably on standard. Um, would be a great uh, thaw uh, survival rate. So I'd say about 90% of embryos are surviving thawing. Okay. And then true or false, embryos less than day three is an egg issue. Over three can be a sperm or egg issue. Oh, this is a great question. Um, It can be very hard for embryologists to determine where we're seeing an issue because sometimes it's not visual like I've talked about. Sometimes we can't see DNA, we can't see some of these things, um, but that is um, kind of widely accepted by most embryologists is um, the egg at the beginning of the process is doing a lot more of the work. So from day zero up until day three. Um, and then when we see embryos arrest around day three or a little further after that, we are um, more concerned about a sperm issue um, because the sperm's DNA becomes much more part of the um, process after day three. Um, so there are some con- conflicting studies on that, but um, I would say it's it's probably, you know, widely accepted that that, that is a general idea. Okay. And then what defines poor egg quality? Because we don't always, we don't always know what is, is, if it's an egg quality issue, but there are some things visually we can see. So if a patient has really fragmented uh, polar body, you know, we talked about that polar body 
telling us that the egg is mature, there are some abnormalities that can happen visually that we can see. So that polar body can be very fragmented, have little pieces around it. Um, the zonas can be abnormally shaped. Um, we can see SERs, which are smooth endoplasmic reticulum in the eggs. Um, there are some there are some visual things we can see like dark eggs, um, indentations in the eggs, and um, I know pops are something that we talk about or I've talked about on my social media. Um, when we inject an egg, we want the cytoplasm to have resistance. So when we stick the needle in, it shouldn't just go in. The egg should in, invaginate and um, the cytoplasm should kind of pop around the needle. And so when that doesn't happen, we call them mushy. The egg had no resistance or it was mushy. And that's something that um, is not a great sign. Oftentimes those eggs, that, that means that the egg is in the process of dying. Oftentimes I'll mark those because sometimes they'll be dead the next day um, or they're less likely to fertilize um, just because something in that egg is, is abnormal because it's not, um, doesn't have resistance like a, a, a typical normal egg should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, can embryos split during the five days before frozen or transferred? Oh, this is another question I get often. Like, how do I know if it's going to be twins? And we have no idea. We have no, absolutely no idea. They do not split um, at any point in time when we see them. Um, that splitting happens after they've already been transferred. I have never once seen an, uh, an embryo split in the lab. Uh, I've never been able to say, oh, this embryo is gonna be twins. We have no idea, absolutely no idea. So <laughs> it'd be super cool if we could be like, oh, this one's gonna be two uh, or three or whatever. But we, have, we can't tell, uh, we absolutely cannot tell. <laughs> okay, uh, what are your thoughts on the embryoscope? Worth it? So I'm not super familiar with embryoscope. From my memory, the embryoscope is where each embryo is individually cultured. So you get a video of your embryo. So it's like um, constant, there's a camera pointed on one embryo um, and it can take continuous video of that embryo. So then you get the cool video where it's from an egg all the way growing up into an embryo. I believe that's what an embryoscope is if I am wrong please forgive me because we don't have an embryoscope in my lab, but I'm pretty sure that's what that is. Um, it depends, it, it likely costs more. So if cost is a factor for you, that may not be something that you're interested in. Like I said, we don't have one um, and have never, we, I don't think we've ever had a patient request it. Um, so it's really personal preference. Um, it can sometimes allow the embryologist not to have to open the incubator to check on your embryos, um, which could be a theory you know, the theory is that the less you open the incubator, um, the better the embryo will be because you're not exposing it to outside air. Um, we haven't really seen that there's a big, you know, research-wise that, that the embryoscope is, you know, opening the incubator is, is causing issues. Um, you know, we're pretty good at keeping it very short and opening them um, only when needed. Um, but also, it, if you really want that video, you know, go for it. Um, it does. I from what from what I've heard from other embryologists is it um, is a little bit more work for the embryologist on the front end because each individual embryo has to be cultured separately. Where um, you know we will culture three or four uh, three or four embryos in the same drop, and these have to be cultured individually one on one. Um, so yeah, it's a personal preference. If your lab offers it, that's awesome. It's a fancy lab because we don't offer that. I don't know 
any, I don't, um, actually in my area, I don't think any of our, the cl- I have five, there are five clinics in my area and none of them, I don't think offer the embryo scope. So um, it's a cool feature that your uh, clinic offers it because they're not cheap. They're very expensive. So um, yeah, if that's something you're into, go for it. <laughs> Um, if you make changes to meds or lifestyle, when should you expect to see those changes in your egg quality? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so it's very similar to sperm. We suggest about three months. Um, that gives it t- gives your body time to absorb any nutrients that you're getting from added vitamins or supplements and things like that. Um, and then for that to translate into the growth of your um, your eggs. So um, we usually t- we typically say for sperm and eggs about three months um, or three cycles before we're starting to see a potential change in egg or sperm quality. Okay. Um, oh, let's see. Please advise. Um, I had three abnormal embryos, uh, minus 22, minus 15, and plus 22. Do you advise transferring any? Ah, that is a question for a genetic counselor. Um, and for your doctor, because um, a lot of clinics will not transfer abnormal embryos because they um, the, the, the miscarriage rate for abnormal embryos is very high. Um, so the chance of live birth with abnormal embryos is, is, is very close to zero, unfortunately. Um, so that is a conversation to have with your clinic. It is to have with your genetic counselor. Um, the genetic counselor can advise you on what specifically those abnormalities mean in terms of a live birth or any sort of genetic defects that could result from um, those deficiencies or additions in those chromosomes. Um, And then you want to ask your doctor if they're comfortable transferring that embryo, if that is allowed in their clinic. Uh, Because some, like I said, some clinics, most clinics will not transfer abnormal embryos. Okay. Um, Let's see. Fragmentation. How to mitigate if possible. So fragmentation is typically seen on day three is when we're um, an embryologist is giving a percentage to the amount of fragmentation that they're seeing in an embryo. Um, I'm not really sure how you would how you would mitigate that. Um, typically when we're seeing fragmentation, you know, a high amount of fragmentation, we are thinking that that embryo is less likely to develop into a high quality blast. Um, but we also don't do day three checks. So I am not as familiar with, um, you know, grading fragmentation, I do it for uh, training, but not like in practice. <laughs> um, so I'm not as I'm not as great at that. Um, so that may be a question for your lab if they are doing day three checks. Um, they may have um, some added insight that I don't typically see because we don't do that at our clinic. Okay. If there is a poor fertilization rate, is it more likely the eggs that do fertilize will not become an embryo? I would say that's unlikely. Um, I would not say that poor fertilization results in poor blast formation. Um, like I said, so even if you have um, 20 eggs to inject, but only six fertilize, I would still expect about 50% of those six to make it to blast. Um, so I think that um, percentage still works no matter how many um, eggs you have fertilized, unless we're seeing a very significant egg quality issue. 
Um, do you look for spindle formation before ICSI or just polar body in timing ICSI? Oh, that's a great question. So we just look at polar body. So the reason that we put the polar body at the top is because of the spindle fibers. We don't want to disrupt them. Um, but you have to have a very fancy special microscope to be able to see the spindle fibers in an egg. And I would say there's very, very few labs that have that sort of microscope because they're very expensive. That's more in a research setting um, as opposed to a clinical setting. Um, but no, that's a very intelligent question. I know. I'm like, like I don't know what this is. It sounds fancy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the I'm like, fibers oh. are what pull the chromosomes apart in um the development of cell, you know, in cell division that's what mm-hmm. pulls the the chromosomes apart to this to the end of the the mm-hmm. egg and um yeah we don't we that's not something we can see without that fancy microscope okay um can m1 turn into m2 if you let them continue developing in a few more hours Yes, they can. Um, and that's something that we had talked about earlier um, earlier today is that they can. Um, it really just depends on what your clinic, how long your clinic will let them, will wait to see if they um, they pop a polar. Well, that's, always, that's what we always call it, pop a polar body. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, how do you prevent ripe eggs in women 40 plus? I'm not sure what they mean by ripe. Um, to me, I'm getting... To me, that means boiled eggs. Um, okay. You like, you know, like they're, yeah. they've been in there a little bit too long. Um, and that's really on, on stimulation. Um, that's that's nothing that you as a patient can really do. Um, it's, it's, again, finding that balance between number of eggs and egg maturity and, and quality based on the stimulation. Um. Here's another fancy one. Uh, use of polarized light microscopy <laughs> tech on embryos before ICSI. Okay, so I think that is the microscope that you would the have fancy. to use. Oh, okay, for the yes, spindle. Yes, to visualize the spindle fibers. I don't know of any clinic who has that, who is offering that. Um, if you know of one, if you're listening and you, you ask that question, I would love to know because it's really cool. It's really cool technology. Um, I just... Um, don't know of any clinics who who use that because one, it's very expensive, and two, would take a lot of time. Um, and when you're doing eight or nine retrievals a day, you don't particularly have that time to to put it on the fancy microscope and look and all those things. Um, so, yeah, I would love to know if this follower. These are two different followers, by the way. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think that I think that is what that is. If I'm misspeaking, please let me know or disregard what I'm saying because I believe that is that is the microscope that you that would be able to show you the spindle fibers but that's very interesting I know those two different followers you got yeah I know I know I'm like why aren't they teaching me this stuff I'm like I don't know what's going on um okay uh pentoxiflin versus theophylline for sperm motility. Do you know anything about that? Oh, pentoxyphylline. So that is what we use um, typically when a patient has a TESA sample. So that's when we've taken testicular uh, tissue because um, their partner or sperm provider doesn't have, um, doesn't ejaculate sperm. So we're taking it from the testy. And so sperm doesn't gain motility until it travels up the epididymis. 
Um, so when you're pulling sperm from the testes, it's all going to be non-modal. It's not going to be moving. Um, and that doesn't mean that the sperm is dead. So that's why we say non-modal and not dead because mm-hmm. non-modal sperm can still be alive. They just don't have motility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so pentoxyphylline is a compound that we can add to sperm essentially like a cup of coffee to wake them up and get them to mm-hmm. move. Um, that's typically only used, I don't know the other one that they're using, which I'm guessing is a variation of pentoxyphylene. Um, I'm not familiar with that one. We use pentoxy, um, but it's typically only used on testy samples. So if we have a sample that's that has some modal sperm, mm-hmm. we're not using it. We're just mm-hmm. going to try to get the, the modal sperm that are already there. Okay. Does the quality slash grading of the embryo still matter if the PG uh, if the PGT test is normal? Yes and no. Um, it matters in terms of if we think it will survive a thaw. So you can have a four AA and a four BC, and they're both normal. But we're still going to pick that four AA because that four BC is probably more likely to die during the thawing process. Um, so it's still great that that they're both normal. Um, but as a lab and as an embryologist, we're still likely picking the higher grade just because you know we want them to survive the thaw and be ready for you when you come in for your FET. Okay. Um, oh my gosh, so much good information today. I'm so excited. So if people yes. want to connect with you or if they have more questions for you, where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Yeah, I first of all, I've enjoyed being on here. You're always so fantastic to chat with. Oh I know last gosh. time we did our first little meet and greet, we talked yeah. for so long. <laughs> uh, I'm just, we're both very chatty people. So yes. Um, but if you'd like to find me, you can find me on TikTok um, at Elise the Embryologist and the same thing on Instagram. Um, and then I've also got a website coming soon. It will probably be up in the next couple weeks um, where I'll be offering some one-on-one IVF education courses. Oh my so, gosh, cool. Yeah, so I I saw that there was a need for that, and Mm -hmm. um, there's only so much I can post on my TikTok, and I get so many questions, especially Mm one-on-one, you know, so um, I thought that'd be something fun to offer, and so yeah, I will, it will be posted on everything once it's up and going, I'm working on it now. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so great, particularly if we don't have access to an embryologist or if there are questions that maybe our clinic can't answer for us, or maybe if things come up afterwards and we have our reports, it's really nice to have a resource to just be like, hey, can I get like 30 minutes, an hour with you? And then we just hash it out. Let me send you everything I have. What does this mean? What does it mean for me? How do we approach this? What what should I be asking my doctors? So having that kind of like coaching session with mm-hmm. you would And I be think it so will nice. also be very helpful before you've started the process process because a mm-hmm. lot of these things you need to know before making a decision mm-hmm. you know there's so many choices do I do ICSI do I conventional do yeah, I yeah, PGTA yeah. what does that mean PGTM all of these things first fresh versus fresh and transfer if you don't know what those things mean it makes the decision even harder yeah totally oh my gosh thank you so much for being here today and making so much time for me I like I I told you we would talk a long time so I know I I already knew we would would chat for a while I'm just glad I had my tea because I'm still you know I'm coming off of a little cold here so uh, I just wanted to make sure I could chat for a while because I am a very chatty person yeah Um, there's a problem with this interview I did today (laughs) 
um, on live TV. Yeah. You know, before, before when they first asked me to do it, they're like, you know, you got to be concise. We've seen your videos. We think you'd be great. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's a three minute segment. And I was like, yeah. three minutes, that's plenty of time. Yeah. And, and then it's been an hour and a half with you. And I'm like, <laughs> To keep talking, <laughs> and, and I know it went very fast. I oh yeah! Like, I mean, it was just like bam, 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 and I was like, oh okay. It's, it was concise, and if it yeah. wasn't concise, they just cut me off, and I was like, oh okay, <laughs> it was fast enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm all about it. I'm like, as, as long as you want to talk, I'm here to listen. You go nuts. Like, <laughs> this is the Elise show at this point, so no, I am like no, cool, no. like. I'm like, I'm good with that. So, but I would love it if you would come back, if we could go, like talk some more about embryos and the lab and all that good I stuff. I would love to, you know, I am, again, I'm a very chatty person. So, <laughs> um, and I like the podcast because one, you know, if I mess up, then things can be edited. <laughs> Didn't like, I didn't like that about the live. I was like, man, if I misspeak, yeah. it happens. It's not that we don't know. Totally. Your brain is going faster than yes. your mouth. But on live yes. TV, it's like, if you misspeak, you misspeak, and that's that. Yeah. It's out there. And you're like nervous. Um, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I typically don't get nervous for things, but I was nervous about this because I knew, like, yeah. it was live. It's, there's no, uh, yeah. no <laughs> covering, covering up any mistakes, you know? Yes. For sure. But yeah, I'd love to have you back. Um, I'm sure there's like a bazillion things we could talk about. I mean, when we last talked, there was a bazillion things we talked about. So I'm sure there's more to cover. And I would love, love, love for you to come back. So if you have time, let me know. You have an open invite. Come back at any point. Absolutely. We'll um, we'll email and, and yes. find another time and some more yes. topics to talk about. Yes. Because um, the topics are endless with IVF. I know. As I'm sure you and the rest of your listeners know. Yeah. Um, it's kind of endless, the kind of stuff you can get into. So. Yes. I know. I'm so excited. This is like so great. I'm so grateful for your time. But it won't be long before we talk again. So until next time. <laughs> I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.